It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Thank you for joining us for another Tuesday edition of our podcast. I want you to imagine being in office for a short period of time and something horrific happens in your office, in your community, and indeed, perhaps even your decision making becomes center stage for a nation. Uh, Steve Mulroy was a brand new district attorney. I think he was brand new, relatively brand new, when a young man named Tyree Nichols was stopped in what should have been a routine traffic stop. And it wound up resulting in an autopsy for Mr. Nichols. How? How do we go from maybe possibly exceeding the speed limit, maybe possibly changing lanes without a signal, maybe possibly some incredibly minor traffic allegation to being beaten to death by men empowered by you, empowered by the people? Police officers have no more power than what They're given, given by you, given by the people. And the video is very, very hard to watch, even for people who have watched other hard things in the past. The video of Tyree Nichols is hard to watch. And yet we must. We should. It should be very hard for us. And we should never lose the difficulty of watching power being used for wrong. People entrusted with authority misusing that authority. The officers involved have been charged with murder in the second degree. And with us today is the district attorney whose office presented that case to the grand jury and whose office will present that case at trial. He's a former federal prosecutor, former law professor, current district attorney, Mr. Steve Mulroy. Thank you, Mr. District Attorney, uh, for joining us. Before we get to the difficult part, and this may be difficult too, but I am fascinated by how people got where they are. So my first two questions, why Cornell and why William and Mary? Yeah. Oh, wow. You surprised me with those opening questions. I didn't expect that. Uh, and thanks again for having me on. I appreciate it, Trey. Um, Cornell, that was easy. Um, I wanted to be the next Carl Sagan. Do you remember him? Yes. Billions yes. and billions of light years away. Innumerable <laughs> galaxies. Um, I, yeah, I wanted to be the next Carl Sagan. It didn't quite work out. Um, I think I, with hard work, I could have become a mediocre uh, physicist. Uh, but, you know, with a little less effort, I could have become a decent lawyer. And so I went in a different direction. William and Mary, that's also easy. Uh, they gave me the biggest scholarship and I didn't have a lot of financial ability back then. So I took whatever was the cheapest option and it worked out great. I met my wife there. Well, they both have. Uh, incredible reputations. Uh, Ithaca, New York, if I'm not mistaken, is where Cornell is. Yep. Um, there's an Innocence Project there with a with a guy that I have a connection with, Professor Bloom. Oh, yes. So I've been there, and I think Williamsburg may be where William and Mary is. Neither one of those are like in the top 20 uh, cities in the nation in terms of size. Uh, right. And they're a little bit different in terms, I guess, of everything else. But so the, you pick Cornell because, I, because it's an excellent school and you thought you wanted to be a physicist. Is that fair? That's right. Yeah, astrophysicist. Yeah. All right. So most people go into law because they cannot do math and science. <laughs> so, 
So was it that you could do it, but you just couldn't do it at the level of an astrophysicist or is yeah. that what it was? I think I think that's probably a good way of putting it. You know, like I say, with great effort, I achieved mediocrity in my <laughs> uh, math and science classes. And meanwhile, I was, you know, tumbling um, very easily into uh, some of the other classes that were sort of uh, pre-law oriented. And I, I realized that uh, civil rights and civil liberties was a an even bigger interest for me. And then be, then it became easy. Then it was go to the law school where I will graduate with the least amount of debt. <laughs> and it also has a fantastic reputation. All right, well, DOJ. And, and, and you're right about those two cities. They you know, are sort of uh, not major cities. Uh, Ithaca was known for um, having the highest number of bars per capita. And uh, Williamsburg, very different, had the highest number of pancake houses per capita. So it's a <laughs> different kind of atmosphere for law school. All right. Department of Justice uh, there. Um, for, the, for those of us who work there, there's, there's no more noble way to make a living and arguably no less lucrative way to make a living. So why <laughs> did you pick public service as opposed to going to a fancy law firm and, and becoming super rich? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, it was a road not taken for me. Kirk, the, the law firm Kirkland and Ellis. Oh, yeah. Is a big law firm, you know, branches all over the place. And, um, oh, I'm blanking on his name. The uh, special prosecutor with uh, Clinton, Pepperdine University Dean. Ken Starr? Ken Starr, yeah. So it was Ken Starr's law firm. Um, and that was the road not taken for me. But really what I, the whole reason I wanted to do law school was because I was interested in civil rights and civil liberties. So it was a pretty easy decision when DOJ uh, made me an offer, you know, that was it. That's the gold star for, for public service law, as you know. All right. Uh, we, we've gone from high-minded astrophysics to uh, the noble calling of of defending people's civil rights. And now we're going to go down into the gutter of politics. I noticed that you ran against an incumbent, which, yes. uh, which I also did. It was the most miserable experience um, of my <laughs> life. I wonder what it was for you and... Do you think the issues that make the news in a DA race are really where you spend your time as the DA, or do they just pick these hot button issues that really don't consume that much of your actual time if you win? Oh, no, clearly you're right about that latter point. And as to the first part of your question, um, I was recruited to run. Uh, we had, uh, you know, and I don't want to get too ideological here, but we had a, a longtime incumbent who was um, sort of notorious for being, you know, maybe the most friendly to a mass incarceration outlook. There were also a number of uh, national headlines about uh, prosecutorial uh, misconduct violations. And, you know, there were a number of people in the county that felt there was a need for a change. And they thought that I might have a decent chance of winning because I had been in politics before I had been a county commissioner for eight years. And so they recruited me to run. And while I, you know, I had a nice, comfortable spot as a law professor, you know, with summers off. And it's hard to convince someone to give up summers off. But, um, you know, I, I did that. But, you know, as to the way the media reports campaign issues and stuff, you're, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, the amount of time we spend talking about things that don't really come up all that often uh, versus the amount of time we spend talking in the media about the real where the rubber meets the road stuff, it's definitely out of whack. 
I remember getting so many questions about capital punishment, which is very, very important. Anytime the state is trying to take your life, that is very, very important. It also, at least for me, came up very, very infrequently, much yes. less frequently than than narcotics cases or property crimes cases. And yet it just seems like when you have elected DAs, they spend their time campaigning on issues that are not what they are going to be doing when they govern. No, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And so we spend a lot of time in the campaign talking about the death penalty. We also spend a lot of time talking about abortion uh, because the Dobbs decision had been hinted at and then actually came down. Um, during the, the very lengthy campaign. And there were all these questions about, well, how willing would you be to prosecute doctors for, you know, performing abortions? And, you know, look, both the death penalty and the abortion cases are, you know, morally significant. I get it. But neither of them come up all that often. They're a tiny, tiny fraction of the total number of cases that we deal with on a, on a daily basis. All right. How do you decide? And I, I think I know the answer to this question, although I'm a little rusty. I think most of our listeners will not know. How do you decide which charges to present to a grand jury contrasted with the charges that were leveled by the police? Do, do, do prosecutors approve arrest warrants in Tennessee or do you just kind of take what the police bring you and then you have to decide what to present? So, yeah, so the prosecution, I mean, the, the police will make initial charges um, and they can get uh, warrants and, and then it comes to us and then we have to make the decision. We have to sort of separate the wheat from the chaff. You know, we take a second look and evaluate, will these charges stick? Do we have enough information or should we drop them? Was this properly charged? Was it overcharged? In some cases, was it undercharged? Um, and, you know, the prosecution really makes the final call. It's the sort of the law enforcement, I guess, is the first draft and the prosecution makes the, the final call. And in our system here in Tennessee, you know, we will take those cases to a preliminary hearing. And if the judge finds probable cause, then we can proceed. But even if the judge doesn't find probable cause, we still have the option of going straight to the grand jury. And if the grand jury finds probable cause, then we can proceed on our own. And I guess if you wanted to, if you wanted, I don't know how often the grand jury meets in Tennessee, but if you wanted to avoid a preliminary hearing for discovery purposes or some other reason, you could indict and skip the prelim, I guess. Is that a possibility? Well, the the defendant has a right to a, a preliminary hearing, but you're right in that as a practical matter. There are any number of cases where we start out with an indictment um, and then everything else is just discovery. Um, and so the Tyree Nichols case is a perfect example. When we were ready to move, we went straight to the grand jury and we were able to announce that we had obtained indictments against the five officers involved in the tragic beating and death of Tyree Nichols. And, you know, we did that quite deliberately because we wanted to come out, you know, sort of swinging and make the announcement prior to the release of the video, because we were afraid that the video, as you accurately described, is difficult to watch, would be incendiary, and we didn't want it sparking protests that were violent, not only in Memphis, but around the country. We're going to take a quick break. More of my conversation with District Attorney Steve Mulroy coming up. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie. 
formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. I am fascinated, Mr. District Attorney, by what we would do differently if we were trying to build the perfect justice system, build a justice system that, you know, people talk about respect for the rule of law. I always add to that worthy of respect, Mm -hmm. people respect it and that it's worthy of respect. I guess when you were a federal prosecutor, federal agents, I don't know whether they had to come to you, but they almost always probably did come to you before they charged someone. Mm-hmm. And therefore, your dismissal rate would have been much less. Do you right. see any wisdom in pre-approval for warrants at the at the state or local level? Yeah, I do. I do think that is, is a better way to go. And, and to be fair here, you know, local law enforcement will quite often call up prosecutors and seek advice, you know, at least the smart ones do. And so it's not at all uncommon, you know, especially, you know, they have relationship with individual prosecutors. They've worked together on cases. They trust each other. You know, they'll they've got their cell phones. They'll call them up and uh, seek guidance. And I I think when that happens, that kind of uh, consultation, that's that's when it works the best. The other thing that fascinates me is this word presumption. There are presumptions, at least Back in the old days when I did it, they kind of attach to law enforcement that, well, they arrested for this. And therefore, that's the expectation that's set, that you're going to go to trial based on what they did. But there's a big chasm between probable cause and beyond a reasonable doubt. So how do you tell not just the police officers that made the case, but also maybe the victims, if they're victims in it, that, look, the police did the right thing. There's probable cause, but I can't prosecute this case. It's not prosecutable. Yeah, that's probably the most difficult part of this uh, job, Trey, and the one that's the most um, unpleasant. Not because I don't want to interact with the victims and their families, um, quite the contrary, but it is sometimes so difficult and heartbreaking to talk to people who have suffered serious losses or, you know, had serious things done to them and try to explain to them, I believe you. I, I, I think what you're saying is true. I think the person did do it. I just don't think we'll be able to convince 12 jurors unanimously beyond a reasonable doubt that that's the case. And so I can't charge it the way you want, or I can't seek the remedy of the sentence that you think 
we ought to seek. It's extremely difficult, those conversations. And, you know, you have to do a lot of uh, active listening and be empathic and just be patient. And, you know, sometimes just the fact that you're willing to meet with them and hear them out um, is enough, uh, but not all the time. Sometimes they go away deeply unsatisfied. And, you know, those are awkward conversations to have. All right. You're the perfect person for me to ask because you have, uh, I guess I'll say a background in math and science. I mean, you can't be good in physics without being good in math and science, I don't think. And from what I recall, before I flunked out of those classes, there is a right answer uh, with, with math, unless you get like real high up and solving simultaneous differential equations. I guess there is an answer. But in the court, I mean, I've never heard really a good definition of beyond a reasonable doubt. I, I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think I know what it means, but I, I wouldn't want to. So has it gotten harder to get convictions over the course of your career? And 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 how would you describe to someone what it means for the government to prove each element beyond a reasonable doubt? Right. And as to whether it's gotten harder, um, that would be a difficult question for me to ask, because you know, I spent some time as a federal prosecutor, and then there was a long interregnum where I was a law professor, and my only contact with the criminal justice system was to do pro bono defense cases, right? And now I'm a prosecutor again. Um, but I will say that in terms of the way of explaining it, you know, um, when I was in the federal system, um, you know, I heard a judge explain it to a jury is it would be the level of confidence you have in one of the most important decisions of your life, you know, which spouse you choose, which career you choose, you know, buying a house, you know, if you've got any doubt at all, and you think that, you know, a reasonable person could share that doubt, then uh, acquit. But if you're, you know, convinced beyond that, you've got that level of confidence, then uh, convict. I think that's probably the, the least worst, the least imperfect <laughs> explanation. You know, I've always thought that the, the the courts actively rebel and resist putting a quantifiable percentage on it. You know, uh, the standard for civil cases is uh, preponderance of the evidence, which is 50.01%. Everyone understands that. No one understands clear and convincing evidence, and few people understand reasonable doubt. I always thought, you know, maybe it would make better sense if we just went ahead and broke down and agreed on some numbers, yeah. you know, like, could we say it's, you know, 60, two thirds for clear and convincing and 80% for 90% for reasonable doubt. I don't know. I mean, so, that's gotta, there's gotta be some way that we can come to a consensus on that. Uh, you know, it's funny you say that. Cause when I hear clear and convincing, the first thing that pops in my head is 75, 75, uh, three quarters. And then okay. when I, 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 I have two children that went to law school, uh, one whose goal is to undo every conviction I ever got. So we, <laughs> we do talk from time to time about <laughs> the justice system, which she tells me I cannot refer to that as the criminal justice system anymore. I got to <laughs> call it something else. But I have 95 in my head, but maybe that's too high. I know I, I know Justice Ginsburg, God rest her soul, said firmly convinced. Right. That, that was kind of the phraseology she used. But it just struck me. That we use that term all the time and we ask lay people to apply it, but we struggle to tell them what it means. Yeah. No, no, you're 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 absolutely right about that. I just um read an interesting article in Slate magazine. You know the old 
uh, expression. I think it comes from Blackstone. Better to let uh, 10 guilty people go free than to wrongfully convict one innocent person. Yes. Um, and the, the article was talking about how the polling data shows that, you know, lay people, jurors, just people, no one buys that. No one actually thinks that's the case. Um, and in fact, you know, there's a significant minority of people who flip it the other way around. You know, they would rather convict an innocent person than allow a guilty person to go free. You know, which, of course, is, you know, is troubling if you care about the presumption of innocence and, and all of that. But in the same context, you know, there, the article said that uh, the people that feel that way are not following the reasonable doubt instruction. Right. They're going with their gut and they're not saying oh, I better make sure I have no reasonable doubt in their mind. They're, they're probably using, you know, tell the truth, they're probably quietly using some sort of more likely than not standard, you know. And so you put 12 jurors in the room and you give them the best, clearest, least ambiguous definition of reasonable doubt that you can think of, which is admittedly not that great a definition. But even if you know, those jurors had the same understanding, some of them may just say, well, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to do my own thing. I think it is a gut feeling usually for for I mean, if you get if you get right down to it, it's not the jury's job to figure out what happened. It is the jury's job to figure out whether the prosecution proved what happened. Right. But I know a thousand different times I used to tell the jury, just use your common sense. Right. And it's up for you to decide what happened. But but actually, neither one of those are accurate. That's trial theatrics. I mean, their job is. You could think you knew know what happened, but yet the prosecution did not prove it. Right. And then theoretically, the jury is not supposed to convict in that situation. But you got to figure most jurors would if, you know, because they they're interested in doing substantive justice, too. They're not interested in following what may seem to them as arbitrary procedural form. They're interested in doing substantive justice, you know, and that's probably not the worst thing in the world. You know, I mean, if we were to list the top 10 things that are wrong with the criminal justice system, I'm sure that would rank all that high. But, you know, it's funny. I've used the same language over and over again when I was a federal prosecutor. You know, you're allowed to use your common sense. You know, uh, you're not you shouldn't have a reasonable doubt, but that doesn't mean you can't have any doubt. We don't have to prove it beyond all doubt, just reasonable doubt. And that's a necessary corrective for, you know, people overcompensating. You know, I mean, because, you know, you, you've got always the 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 juror who you know in their mind thinks that as as long as they can come up with some scenario however ridiculous which would explain the evidence then we've got to let the defendant free and that's not a good idea either you know every every system and the and the slate article talks about this every system has false positives and false negatives you know in medicine and engineering you do a cancer screening 10 percent of the time it's going to say you have cancer when you don't and you know, 20% of the time it fails to catch it and you try to do what you can to keep the false positives down and the false negatives down. Um, and we need to be concerned about both. You know, um, there, we, we need to be concerned about making sure that we're not tagging somebody with the scarlet letter when actually they were innocent. But we also need to be concerned about not letting people who are a clear threat to society go free. And it's just a balance between those two. Yeah. And then we get into actual innocence versus legal innocence, which makes my head hurt. And you were the law professor and 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 I was not. So more of my interview with D.A. Steve Mulroy is next. All right. I want to move. I'll, let me ask you this, because, you know, I'm sure people are sitting there thinking, well, I'm not sure. Maybe people are sitting there thinking, OK, something's on video, whether it's a robbery, whether it's Tyree Nichols. How hard could that be? 
And I'm sitting there thinking, y'all have never been in front of a jury. Yeah. I mean, in an unusual way, it may be even harder because the jury may be thinking, okay, they wouldn't be going to trial if this was all there is. So what what are we not getting? I mean, it's I don't want to say you can have too much evidence, but just because it's on video doesn't mean you're guaranteed to prevail. Right. No, I think that's true. I mean, because, you know, the defense can say, well, what happened before the camera was turned on? What happened after the camera was turned off? Um, you know, yeah, the video shows that the defendant did X, Y and Z. But is there an argument that they were justified in doing X, Y and Z? And, you know, and then you've got arguments about, well, you know, did they cause the harm intentionally or willfully or recklessly or knowingly? I mean, you know, there's always there's always something to argue. Right. If you're uh, a decent lawyer. You know, we had a case not too uh, long ago where, you know, there was something that was shown on video. But the question was, you know, was it homicide? Was it self-defense? You know, and that's just part of the nature of the justice system, which I I I disagree with your uh, daughter, although I I think she and I may agree on a lot of things. (laughs) I'm still willing to call it the justice system. We'll see. Oh, my Lord, there is nothing worse than paying off law school loan debts for somebody that doesn't agree with a single solitary thing that comes out of your mouth. But, but I am. All right. Uh, this is a hard question. I'm t- I've seen some terrible things before. I know you have also. That video, it, just, it hit me at a level that other things have not hit me. It just I don't want to ask you, is the case I hadn't gone to trial yet, but but there was a depravity that I saw that I I don't want to see in anyone, much less people in uniform. So let me ask it this way. When people talk about a training issue, I kind of separate training issues from hiring issues. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you can train that out of people. I I would just say they should not have been in the position to do it, period. Right. And, you know, uh, Trey, there was a great New York Times article not too long ago I don't know, maybe six weeks. Uh, I'm losing track of time now. A lot of lots happening, but um, you know, they they showed how they were having recruiting issues. Uh, there was pressure to increase the numbers, and uh, they began to lower standards at the academy. And there was pressure from uh, some persons to the supervisors to give a pass to recruits that may not have been you know, checking all the boxes and fulfilling all the requirements. And, you know, no surprise, it, it can lead to abuse. And it's something that we need to take seriously. I mean, you know, it's like you said, is it, is it recruiting standards, you know, clearly training, supervision? You throw them all together and you wrap it up with a word that maybe is a little bit vague, but I think really hits the nail on the head and it's culture. You know, organizations have cultures and, you know, Without commenting on the details of that case, because as you correctly pointed out, it's a pending case. I do think that everything we've learned over the last few years, you know, suggests that it's not just a couple of bad apples. There's a culture that needs to be addressed. And you can say that and you can simultaneously say that the majority of people on the force are people of good faith. But that's not inconsistent with the idea that there's a culture that needs to be changed. And and until we are able to wrap our heads around both those ideas and take the second one seriously, we're not going to get better. All right. You have a full-time job and I'm quasi-retired. So I got three more questions and I'm going to let you go back to work. I, Thank I you. think 
I watched your press conference where you introduced your trial team. Mm-hmm. How does the district attorney decide whether he or she will participate in a trial as opposed to, you know, you got tens of thousands of other warrants, I would imagine, in your office, if not more, right. uh, an office of what, 100 people, 200 people? I don't know what, but you got you got a big job. So how do you decide whether you're going to actively participate in the trial team or not? I mean, my strong inclination is not. Um, and, and it's for this reason. I, I have colleagues, other DAs across Tennessee who, you know, their districts are rural districts, much, much, much smaller caseload, much, much smaller staff, you know, like six lawyers. I've got 115 lawyers. I've got 230 employees. I've got well over 100,000 cases every year. I've got, you know, budget issues. I've got, uh, you know, to deal with the state government, with the county government, the city government. And, you know, I campaigned on a reform agenda. And so I am trying to uh, enact uh, and, you know, inculcate different policies and different priorities. It's not the best use of my time for me to, you know, because you know yourself when you're in trial. I mean, that's going to be your primary focus. I mean, you know, it's late nights and weekends and, you know, getting ready. And that's the thing that 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 drives you. Um, that's just not practical for me. So um, now there was a there's a case or two right now involving some interesting constitutional questions that I've appeared in one and I may appear and argue in another. But, you know, those are few and far between for the nitty gritty trial work. You know, I'm going to leave it to the people who have been in this building for the last, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, and I'm going to focus on all the things that only the DA himself can do. All right. There is a, I don't want to say debate raging. That may not be the right way, but there is a debate in this country about the role of the prosecutor. And there's not a DA in the country that doesn't have to decide where to place his or her resources. Right. And some DAs are much more interested in what they call violent crime and others may be environmental crime or civil rights violations that I think everyone should and probably does understand. What is the role of the prosecutor? I mean, if you like believe that drugs should be decriminalized, but yet they're not. Right. What is you know, I don't want to be too esoteric, but I also don't want to ask you about a specific fact pattern. What is the role of the prosecutor when it comes to effectuating what you think the world should be as opposed to the law as you find it? Well, by design, the prosecutor, the elected prosecutor, is supposed to have very, very broad discretion. And under our separation of powers, the other branches can't take that discretion away. And that's by design. And I think it's a good thing. Um, and it's funny because, you know, one of those cases I just mentioned that I'm getting involved in deals with that very question. And, you know, there's a lot of historical evidence to suggest that the framers of both the federal constitution and the Tennessee constitution wanted to make sure that, uh, and then the Tennessee, that, that the prosecutors have that discretion as sort of a check and balance. And in Tennessee in particular, the fact that they are locally elected prosecutors is a big deal. And it means that you've got to give them that broad discretion. And so that means that I'm allowed to use my policy priorities, what I think should and should not be priorities, to inform my judgment about you know, what cases we take and what cases we don't. Now, that's not to say that I would say I would never prosecute X or I will always prosecute Y, because you got to allow the facts and circumstances of each case 
to also inform your judgment. But it does mean that the DA gets to set the priorities. And and if the, you know, in our system in Tennessee, the voters don't like that, then they can vote me out. And I think there was a second part of your question, and I think I forgot what it was. What did she say? No, I, no, no, no you, you answered it. I mean, it, it's a lot of, of power. Some people argue too much power in the hands of the prosecutor. I used to think that. But now that I have the job, I'm, I'm, I'm more OK with <laughs> You know, in South Carolina, the, the prosecutor also controlled the docket. Not only I mean, I, I set the cases for trial. And I gave that back to the judge because I don't think the prosecutor ought to be setting the trial docket. Like, you, you can you can mess I, with people when you do that. I think that's commendable of you to do that because um, that does surprise me. I'm I, of course every court I've ever you know been in, it's the judge that does all of yes. that. So. And it works better that way. And that way, when court breaks down, it's the judge's fault, not the prosecutor's fault, which is the real reason I did it. All right. I got one quick one and one not quick one, and then I'm going to let you go to work. There was another case. I think you were the DA when it happened, but but I could be wrong. There was a teacher who was out for a jog. Is that in your jurisdiction? Not only was it in my jurisdiction, but it was my first week on the job. Okay. Yes. Um, I'm assuming that case is still pending. Yes. Yes. Any, um, given the fact you don't set the docket, any indication of when either that case or the defendants and Tyree Nichols, will they be tried together or will they be tried separately? Well, I mean, you know, that's up to the the defendants. If they file motions for severance, we'll deal with it at that time. I mean, you know, our preference would be to try them, try them together. And that's what we're, you know, hoping for. Um, you know, it's going to be many months before the Tyree Nichols case is uh, tried if it comes to trial because, you know, there's just a lot of body cam footage and there's, you know, five different defendants and, you know, there's just a lot to, to litigate, I imagine. Um, can't really give you a crystal ball uh, prediction on the Eliza Fletcher case either. That's that teacher you were referring to. Um, but, you know, I will, I will tell you, my first week on the job, so it was the, you know, what the newspaper headlines call the billionaire heiress teacher jogger who was tragically kidnapped and raped. That occurred on my second day on the job. And we found out the tragic results four or five days later. And um, everyone said, you know, this is tragic. This is terrible. But this is a once in a decade case. D.A. Mulroy, it's not usually like this. Don't think that this you know job is going to be like that. And then a couple of days later, we had the Ezekiel Kelly case, which was the uh, Facebook Live shooter who you know, allegedly uh, drove around the city and, you know, on a sort of a murder spree. The city was on lockdown for a number of hours. That was my first week on the job. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of DAs across the country told me that I had the I had the most with between that and Tyree Nichols. I had the most intense first six months on the job of any DA in the country. I would think they're right. But I would also think that you were very um appreciative of the fact that you had a lot of experience, uh, albeit maybe years removed. It, it wasn't mm-hmm. like you were a brand new DA. You'd been right. a fed and you'd been a law professor and, and a criminal defense attorney. So, yeah, that's that's a lot. That's a lot for a first term. It's certainly a lot for a first couple of months. I'm going to let you go with this. For someone who says, OK, I'm I may be to the right. I'm more, uh, you know, law and order, whatever those buzzwords are. What's a book? Or something that you would recommend to say, okay, I'm with you. I'm not trying to change your mind, but 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 let me 
encourage you to read this book. I mean, when you mention that people may be okay with innocent folks being convicted, my mind immediately went to the Count of Monte Cristo. I mean, it destroys you when you are serving time for a crime you did not commit. It destroys your soul. Yes. What's something that you would say, you know what, I'm with you, but think about this, read this. I think um, I would recommend the book Charged by Emily Bazelon, who's a New York Times uh, journalist. Um, And she alternates each chapter between two different types of prosecutors and two different types of uh, uh, criminal justice approaches. And, you know, full disclosure, one of them is my predecessor. Um, I think I would recommend that. I'd also recommend um, uh, a good, uh, there's a, I forget the title, there's a good documentary about the Central Park Five case, um, which I think sensitizes people not only to the potential for wrongful convictions, but also very, very counterintuitive, the possibility of false confessions. I think that may be titled When They See Us or When They Hear Us. That might be... that. Yeah, I think that was the multi-part docudrama, right? Okay, okay. Right? There is also a, a just a, a, you know, like 90-minute documentary. I forget the title of it, but either of those are, are excellent. The, the one you're talking about was extremely well done, and that would be very uh, engaging as well, I think. District Attorney Steve Mulroy, I uh, cannot thank you enough. You got a lot going on, and um, uh, we'll be watching these, you know, trials. I hate to say capture the country's attention because because uh, they're terrible, but they did. So the best of luck to you and your trial team and your office, and thank you. And I look forward to visiting with you again soon. Thank you. This is uh, this was a lot of fun. Yes, sir. You take care. Thank you. Take care. Listen ad-free with a Fox News podcast plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.